My encouragement is when we think of the future and we think of the challenges we have today that we go beyond the immediate to actually think about future generations. And we do it in a way that we begin the journey because we won't arrive at it in a single step. Hello and a very warm welcome to this, our second series of transformation stories from the award-winning Valtech Cafe. Last year, we spoke to more than 25 global brands and industry experts about their experiences of digital transformation, and this series is no different. From airlines to retailers, manufacturers to healthcare companies, this is a podcast series that strips away the digital buzzwords and challenges what we all thought we knew about our industry. Covering topics from the circular economy to customer experience, emerging tech to composable architectures, we're removing the filters and getting to the bottom of what's really going on in digital today. I'm Tizzy Philp, and welcome to the podcast. Is modern banking fit for the modern age? Is technology innovation alone enough to make the difference consumers need to see? Well, those are the questions that we'll be delving into in our conversation today. Whether it's a need for banking without borders, physical or otherwise, or perhaps a way to engage a new kind of talent into wanting to join the industry, there is lots to consider as we look at the future of banking in the context of transformation. I'm very happy to be joined by Bill Ashlock, Chief Technology Officer at Securency, a financial markets infrastructure tech company focused on enhancing capital formation and stimulating global liquidity and Sandro Tarkini, industry lead for finance across EMEA here at Valtech, to discuss all of this in more detail. So Bill and Sandro, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Good to be here. Thank you very much, Tizzy. Happy to be here. Great. Well, we have a huge amount of conversation to get stuck into, but let's start off with some intros, first of all. And Bill, perhaps you'd like to go first and tell us more about you and your background and indeed what's brought you to this role in Securency as well. Right. Uh, Bill Ashlock here with the Securency Group. It's a very unusual journey of both discovery and experience of being very frustrated across traditional banks with our inability to serve key customers who actually created a tremendous number of jobs, stimulated trade, supported the way countries and communities worked with each other. And out of that frustration was really a journey that began in the late 2000, 2008, 2009, where I left traditional corporate banking and got involved in technology-based startups and innovation. That journey has taken me on an amazing from New York to Singapore and now into the United Arab Emirates, where four or five years ago, I got the opportunity to build a cloud-native corporate bank literally from scratch, literally off a whiteboard with a absolutely clean sheet to six months of a technology build later, launching a Cat One corporate transaction bank in Abu Dhabi global markets. That journey opened my eyes up to the fact that traditional banking didn't meet the needs of the very clients they intended to serve. And we can talk more about that as this conversation goes on. And I set off to launch a financial service technology company based around impact and the impact on communities and people 
affordability and accessibility. In looking at my tech partners, I reached out to Securency and Securency turned around and convinced me that rather than go the direction independently, I should join up with them on really a road to creating freedom for corporations and individuals in the decentralized financial space and bringing affordability and accessibility to everyone. And so that brings me to Securency. Very excited to be here and look forward to the discussion to follow. Perfect. Thank you, Bill. And uh, definitely lots of exciting things to talk about as part of your background as well. So thank you for being here. Right, Sandra, over to you. Quick and Joe, for those who don't know you yet. Okay, a couple of words about me. Thank you, Tizzy. I joined Waltech about one year ago, coming from PwC Switzerland, where I was driving digital banking and fintech topics. Prior to that, I worked directly in the industry the same way as Bill. I worked as an an equity trader and later on as deputy head of institutional business at a small Swiss investment bank. My role here at Waltech is a bit different. It's mainly to bring in the financial services perspective into the assignments that we deliver to the industry clients and to leverage all the FS know-how that we have around the world to the benefit of our clients, no matter where they are located. Thank you, Sanjay. So lots of different angles to approach this conversation with today. So let's dive straight into it then. And Bill, I'm going to come to you first because you mentioned it there in your introduction a little bit. What's wrong with traditional banking today, do you think? And what are the big questions that need to be asked? And how do we even begin to tackle them? Yeah, it's an interesting, almost complex series. The The challenge today is we have a well-honed infrastructure and approach that's designed to protect consumers, really geared to providing a profitable returns to shareholders. And in the middle, you have consumers who are being offered and delivered in general commodity-based propositions. So if you think of a retail client, a current account is a current account is a current account. And other than simplicity and accessibility, perhaps price, it is the same no matter what bank you deal with in any part of the world. The question is, in that affordability and accessibility set of questions and differences, have we lost sight of the very communities and individuals that we're trying to serve? For example, people at risk, be it that woman in an abusive situation, if she, someone helps her with an intervention and she now steps out, how easy is it for her to re-engage and actually have a checking account that works and be able to pay her bills? In a lot of cases, it's very, very difficult. So the comment I would make is despite all of the technical innovations, all the awareness we have about consumers and marketplaces, their needs, their wants. Most of the banking focus is on shareholder return, efficiencies, and high levels of automation, all which are great financially, but have very, very little to do with serving the communities and the individuals uh, purportedly what they're there for. Do you think that banks, the current system of banking and the way it's all set up at the moment, clearly it's not, in your opinion, fit fit for purpose in terms of serving humans and the the communities that they need to, but isn't that a 
symptom of being the size that they are and having to need to have the regulations in place that they have in order to be able to function at that scale? I think there's change. I would almost encourage, they are too large, but perhaps for different reasons than the ones you suggest. There are a lot of people that would like to do banking differently than they do today. And the challenge is you operate within a culture, within an institution, and the ability to drive institutional change is very, very problematic. That's the first part. And even when you see a vision, having all of the individuals that need to support you, compliance, regulations, technologies, kind of function in a helpful way is difficult because their goals, their KPIs, their measures of success are quite different. You know, mm-hmm. they're measured by what is the risk to failure? What is the reputational risk? Their ability to say no. Whereas we need to have banks with all the supporting infrastructure geared to how they can say yes. And that presents its own unique challenge within it. And the second part is having the right expertise in all the new technologies and ways of thinking. So frequently, banks have people that individuals who are more skilled in traditional on-prem, maybe doing some early cloud adoption. We may have a few innovators that are familiar with distributed ledger protocols and all the opportunities that that presents. But bringing those people together to actually realize transformation is very problematic because there's not enough and there's not enough investment money and there's no understanding of the different techniques that you can actually accelerate the realization of the possibility. So it's a, it's a fairly messy situation, but it starts mm-hmm. with people who have a dream. It's compounded by the fact that the right support structure to make that real. And then third, having the technology wherewithal to deliver on that. Really great points there, Bill. And Sandra, I'm going to come to you here just to add a little bit of a flourish to that, because as well as the the aspects that Bill's approaching this from, from a community perspective, there's also other major problems that the traditional banks are focusing on at the moment, right? So what's the future of cash? What's the future of, of our payment system? This discussion around composable banking, modular banking, there are all kinds of other things going on too, adding into this complex mix. What are the bigger, biggest questions and biggest challenges for you today, would you say, from the conversations that you have with your clients too? Well, the biggest challenge is, I would say it's the cultural aspect of the whole transformation that the the banks need to go through. Of course, they are stuck with, in many, many cases, with legacy technology and so on that makes it quite difficult for them to adapt to the new situation that appeared over the last couple of years. It makes it difficult for them to really compete with the latest banks that we have seen starting on a greenfield approach. However, it is the cultural aspect, and it's just what, what Bill was saying. They are sticking to their traditional KPIs. They are following mainly what is written in their business procedures. And it's very, very hard to actually change something, mm-hmm. to align new goals, to find new client groups, and so on. It is heavily regulated. And I think this regulation 
stops them in looking right and left and to find new ways. Yeah, Sandra, there's, there's one additional question that I think a lot of organizations are missing, which is changing the questions we ask ourselves when we wake up every morning. And, you know, frequently bankers, when they wake up, it's like, how do I avoid a fraud? How do I ensure that I'm compliant? How do I improve the efficiency? And how do I make it easier for my clients to do business with me? In whatever the priority in which one asks those questions, that generally tends to drive. And we could get creative and say, well, instead of just the four questions, there's eight questions. But my point is, we're missing some of the most important questions. And the simple thing is, how do we make a difference in the lives of the people that are our clients and our targeted clients? What social economic indicators are we trying to change? How do I actually make the business of financial services more affordable, more accessible, more inclusive? How do I do that in a sustainable way that actually honors and protects the environment around us? Those questions in general are not top of mind with financial services companies, especially banks. You know, they may have bits and pieces. So my encouragement is when we think of the future and we think of the challenges we have today that we go beyond the immediate to actually think about future generations. And we do it in a way that we begin the journey because we won't arrive that in a single step. I totally agree. All these questions that you just outlined, I don't think that they are on top of the agenda of uh, most of people involved in financial services today. That's a really interesting point to hang on then, Sandro, because I wanted to just come back to something that we talked about in our, our session when we prepped to this podcast and we talked about, well, we had to think about what we wanted to cover in here. And a really interesting point came out, which touches on what you've both spoken about here, which is perhaps banks underestimate the future. So I'll come back to that in a second. But, you know, Bill, what you're talking about is a much broader transformational change, a complete shift of mindset of the whole industry. Whereas perhaps, Sandro, some of the challenges that we deal with on a day-to-day basis are those more kind of directly business-related challenges for that single bank there in that moment. So how do we make that shift then into thinking in that broader transformational sense, this whole industry mindset shift? What do we need to do to get there, in, in your opinion, Bill, do banks underestimate the future and how do we make them think differently? Well, the easy answer is if you look at the results of what's going on, with the exception of some really cool stuff on the edges, the, the easy answer is yes, they, they totally underestimate. As recently as 2019, Accenture estimated that 50% of the banks in the world had not spent a single dollar on digital transformation, not even a a penny. Now, my observation is, I think a lot of people since then have begun that journey, but the, the question is the journey to where? And the simple thing, almost doing a takeoff on the old cliche or the old saying, a journey is a single step begins that and, and starts down that path. I think we have to redo our mindset and redo the paradigms through which we we look at the decisions we have to make. 
and expand. So it's not just about being regulatorily compliant, but it's going beyond that to say simple things of financial freedom, accessibility, affordability, and inclusion. How do we make that real? And just like we've done on gender and race equality, just like we continue to do in expanding accessibility of financial services to the poor and to the people that may not be as literate as others. And I think you see tremendous things going on in Africa and other parts of the world. Um, There are examples of where it's really working. And the sad part is in some of the developed countries, you can see it on the fringes in the UK and the US. But if we could bring that into more mainstream banking, wow, there's so much potential. This focus on customer experience is absolutely pivotal, of course, Bill. I'm wondering what your take is, and to you as well, Sandro, on the idea of composable banking. We're already seeing lots of uh, banks, or not lots, but some banks start to make the move towards this more modular approach to banking. What are we seeing so far? My response is you're seeing tremendous propositions showing up in the fintech community and making that available to banks. A lot of your uh, leading institutions are embracing that, whether it's within a, a particular segment of their proposition or more holistically across their whole technology platform. So I do think composable modular banking is the way of the future. And as that expands to include some of the new thinking and business models in the distributed ledger opportunity, there's so much potential on where that can take it. Now, the question that I often wrestle with is, if you start new, it's a pretty straightforward journey. Transforming legacy uh, institutions is significantly orders of magnitude more difficult. And I actually worry a lot about mid-tier banks who provide, a, have a risk appetite for doing business at the big guys stone. So we're in the middle mm-hmm. market, they're supporting mid-tier, less advantaged people. Their ability to make that transition is very, very difficult. And I don't know, I'm hopeful, but significant fears, uncertainty, and doubts on their ability to do it in time before the tech opportunities disintermediate them and provide a a radical alternative. I certainly agree that the model of banking is the future, but it's not only a technology question, it's also a cultural question, in my opinion. The reality is that a lot of incumbents are still stuck with their legacy technology and an organizational structure that has grown very, very complex over the past many years that they have been operating. Mm. This makes their ability, of course, to respond to new developments still very cumbersome and a huge challenge. I want to focus on something that uh, you mentioned, Bill, and take this question back to you, Sandro, and talk about the kind of challenger banks versus the major banks that we're seeing with many hundreds of years of heritage in some cases, the banking industry has this extensive and protected heritage. So this is one of the problems or challenges to be overcome, of course. We see swathes of young people entering the sector as a guarantee of a stable, well-paid job for their future. I think we can all, all relate to that. Do you see this, Sandro, then, as do you think we need 
more than just new tech. We need, in fact, a complete, as we've said, mindset shift if we're going to encourage the industry to be something different in the future. Because to be something different, we need new people, new talent, fresh, fresh approaches, cumulative new mindsets to be able to affect proper change. Absolutely. No doubt about it. I mean, for decades, large banks were in the pole position when it came to recruiting the best talents, the smartest people. For different reasons, you mentioned one of them, the high salary was, of course, one of them. Mm. Today, the situation is clearly different and other players have become the main talent magnets. Is it big tech, big pharma and so on? And banks need to change. If they want to remain interesting for the true talents, they need to change their culture. They need to change their ways of working. Less hierarchy, more wiggle room for personal development and ideas new incentives, and so on. Mm. The salary alone won't do the trick. Today, other industries are able to pay the same amounts like the banks were doing over the past. So how can we make the banks attractive to the people who have that right kind of mindset and are at the right point in their career to be able to affect change themselves? My recommendation is bank spinoff innovation ideas that run quite independent. If you think of the early innovative movies, Disney spun off a whole different production house that took the company in a very different direction than they historically have been. You can see that with a number of the larger banks sponsoring innovative startups. And for a fraction of their normal transformational budget, they can fund a startup proposition challenger within their own organization and and bring that to market. And the question always becomes is how much sustainable freedom do they have? And, And I think they'll continue to wrestle with it. But my encouragement is rather than trying to change the monolith, find a country you care about, find a segment you care about, but that is relatively standalone and give a small group of people the investment and the freedom to deliver on the potential within that. And then if it works, expand and retrofit that to the larger organization. So a bit of test and learn on a much larger scale. The key part of that is you provide the people that have the experience and understanding of what banking is all about that actually have also an innovation mindset. And when those two come together, a mixture of old and young, innovation and experience, um, tremendous things happen and follow. And I think when you look at every successful FinTech, every successful startup, you'll find in the background that a mixture of experience and innovation mindset being a significant part of the foundation. I want to now flip it a little bit and start talking about the consumer experience, because I know we're talking about how these institutions can shift their business models to create a better experience for their consumers. But do you think that consumers will ever be brave enough to buy into a new way of banking? Even with the scandals that have rocked the industry over the last couple of decades, we still see customers put their trust in these institutions, even when there are other options available to them. So is it because there aren't enough alternatives or how can we reassure people that their finances ultimately are safe when we start to introduce more variables? How are we going to build trust? I sincerely hope that consumers buy into a new way of banking sooner or later. And I'm certain 
that we already see a first timid change in the customer behavior, especially in the retail space. It is obvious that the value chain, especially, as I mentioned, in the retail space, is more and more challenged and more and more services are commoditized by new market entrants, challenger banks, neobanks, fintechs, and so on. Therefore, customers should start questioning their traditional relationships and look for more convenient and less costly alternatives, if available. Yeah, we see glimpses of it, I mentioned, because a lot of people open up new banking relationships. However, they are still keeping their old tra- relationship alive, actually. Yeah. But I hope that this change will be more drastic over time. And you mentioned the question of trust, how to build trust. If I remain in the retail space, I see trust still comes from the banking license, actually, and the deposit protection that goes along with it. On the one hand, and on the other hand, I think there's a certain reluctance when it comes to fintechs, new players, and so on. And that goes into the direction of uh, security when it comes to data security, data confidentiality, and so on. And I think, Mm -hmm. especially in this point, the incumbents still have a smaller advantage over the newcomers. But these newcomers do offer a better experience, don't they? I mean, I know from personal experience, Monzo, for example, I got a Monzo account a couple of years ago and it was so intuitive. It was so helpful. And some of the aspects that you were talking about earlier, Bill, just really you know, being built for the user. If you lost your card, you didn't have to spend three hours on the phone to one of the major banks waiting for them to to shut your card down. You know, there was a very quick way on the app to be able to disable your card without having to worry about it and a new one arrived the next day. They are so much easier or have been historically so much easier to deal with. Some of the features that they've introduced feel like they are proactively trying to help you as a customer, make your life easier. I know some of the other banks are starting to bring in elements that like that, you know, their apps are improving, their features are improving, but somehow it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah, it doesn't. And, and I would suggest the, the leading indicator, you look in the UK with the challenger banks, initially, that was the, what I would call the discretionary current account, but an increasing number. And if I look at the and the momentum now is dramatically building where salaries are going directly into those challenger banks. And several of them are making it significantly easier for salaries to go directly there. So my my own perception of that trend is the dominance that the high street banks have had will rapidly shift to being almost the secondary account you keep because you have your mortgage there or you have some other credit relationship there. And what will end up happening is the challenger banks become your primary point of contact. The leading indicator I think we often forget is the sheer quantity of value stored on a card or within an account. If you think about that and consider that part of traditional banking, everything from gift cards to value store cards, to debit cards, and a whole variety of alternative banking instruments have already gained momentum and and are actually quite well established and accepted. And the fascinating thing is this decentralization of services and deconstruction of services 
and where you get your mortgage from a different provider than you do your traditional banking. Your credit card is from yet a different bank. And in case in point, my credit card relationship is with the bank here in the Emirates that I have no other relationship with that bank's Emirati footprint. You know, and I think that will be increasingly the trend of the future. The consequence of that is new entrants can come in with specialized propositions and welcome to the dawn of consumer DeFi. And in reality, it's already here. So, Bill, you talk a lot about this decentralization of banking, and it would be really great if you could kind of map out for those people listening who can't quite picture what decentralized banking might look like in reality. Can you tell us more about your vision on on that? The easy way to understand the vision is to think of a mixed marketplace that already exists on your phone. I mean, most people have an Amazon app and use that for some of their e-commerce proposition. And Amazon is a mixture of direct sales, indirect sales, and facilitated sales. And the fascinating part about that is if you had an app on your phone that you could easily plug in any investment where I left my value, be it crypto, cash, but I left my value, I earned money on the value that I left. And I could plug in and plug out all sorts of providers And then when I looked at credit, I could see the offers on hand and I could consume credit from any of the providers I was looking for. I could apply for credit from any of the providers that were out soliciting my business. You have the origins of decentralized finance where there's no mother institution that's doing all things to all people in all ways. Now, the the great part of securities primarily focused on the institutional decentralized finance. And you lose that single point of control. And we're about ensuring regulatory compliance within that. There's others that are doing a similar proposition where all of a sudden it's the combination of specialists in what can give the consumer, the institution, the best return on their investment, can provide the most efficient credit combined the most efficient utilization of collateral that they need for working capital. All of a sudden, this specialization, yet seamlessly integrated, all comes together. And the beauty in the consumer marketplace is they already have aggregation apps that are on the early stages of it. But as the efficiency, as the robustness of the specialty providers increase, with the value of app integrators, very similar to what Amazon does for all the resellers, improves. The possibilities are endless. And so I have a specialist and a user experience that brings together different specialties across the financial services spectrum, all focused on accessibility, inclusion, and affordability. And kind of seamlessly behind the scenes, all of a sudden the use of blockchain, distributed protocols, different business models comes into play. So the expense of using that infrastructure dramatically decreases. So in a nutshell, I see apps emerging that bring together multiple financial services providers 
And the financial services providers, there's a great digital bank here in the Emirates that already is looking at providing modular services to consumers where you only use one without the requirement to use all. And that specialization begins to emerge. So then how do the incumbents respond to this shift? How can they make change? Because, Sandra, I don't want to do, you know, a lot of our major clients and big incumbents a disservice. They, a lot of them are taking great steps towards digitalization, to, towards providing a better customer experience, towards transforming their organizations from a cultural organizational standpoint, as well as from a technology standpoint. They are embarking on transformational change. It might not be at the scale that we need to be considering, and that's when we go back to the underestimation of the future aspect. But what does this mean for the incumbents? If we were to take this approach that that Bill's talking about here, how can they get on board? What does it mean for them from a business perspective? And what are the steps that can be taken by them to, to join up? I mean, we've already had a conversation in this series about the metaverse, for example, and the potential of digital advancements like the metaverse. I know that we've seen that trial by BAML and some of the Korean banks. What do you think of the incremental improvements that, that can be made in the interim? The metaverse, in my opinion, is once it's used and available actually at its full potential, I just see it as an evolutionary step coming from physical branches to e-banking to mobile banking and so on. I don't see it actually as the next thing really disrupting the banking landscape or the financial services. Whereas, uh, if I understood Bill correctly, he's more talking about decentralized finance, the DeFi use cases that we see. And that is, of course, a completely different story because DeFi at its heart is actually taking the bank as the central provider of a service out of the equation. So I think it's two different levels that we are talking about here. Metaverse just an evolutionary step of what is going on right now already, while on the other hand, DeFi is really the danger for the financial services industry to be, yeah, disrupted, to use that word that has become uh, very, very popular and too popular, actually. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. Disruptive has almost created its own definition, which nobody really knows what it means anymore. I think that the challenge for the larger banks is to really understand where they add value. And what I mean by that, the heart of banking is a risk management and a balance sheet play, be it for a consumer or an institution. And the banks understanding risk, being willing to take on that risk for a price and offer a service to the consumer or the institution. The dilemma is that a lot of big banks have added a lot more to that. You know, they've added the experience of walking into a branch, and now we realize it's all about the app. And we oscillate across different things to the consumer, which add value. And I think that whole paradigm, it's very, very difficult for an institution to step back and to realize what's important and what's not. Now, the big banks have figured out that most consumers don't go to a branch anymore. So they're dramatically streamlining those branches that are out there and to the detriment, in certain cases, of local communities that no longer have a branch in their village or town. 
I think there's going to be emerging incumbents and some of the challenger banks in the UK creating storefronts so that people can have that personalized experience, which is still part of banking, can have a mix of that complementing the, the digital. The big question is, how willing is a bank to look at what's profitable and what's not, and to begin to deconstruct the historical proposition? You know, a few were starting to do that. Most really, really struggled. I think Citibank has probably done a better job than some of the other global banks at beginning to focus on what they're good at and abandon what they're not. But it's, it's very, very difficult and very expensive as well. We've been talking for almost 45 minutes or 40 minutes now, and I feel like we could keep talking for a long, long time yet because there's clearly so much to un unpack in this conversation and it is huge and multifaceted and uh, certainly extremely interesting, but maybe one for a, for a second round at some point. Bill, Sandro, thank you so much for joining me to talk about all of this. Some fascinating topics have come up and uh, certainly very interesting to see where we'll be this time in the next 10 years, let's say. Let's give them some time to change, shall we? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Tizzy. Thank you. You've been listening to the latest transformation series from Valtech Cafe. Hit subscribe to get access to our whole back catalogue of conversations. And if you'd like to know more about what we do, why not visit us at valtech.com for all the details. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>